Hello, everybody. Welcome to Millennium Live. My name is Connor Tui, and today I have a very special guest. We have Karen Hold, who is the founder and CEO of Experience Labs. I'm very excited to be talking to Karen today. She's got quite the career. She has over 25 years of experience uh, consulting for major Fortune 500 companies. Uh, some of them include AARP, AT&T, a couple of car companies, Audi, Mercedes, Porsche, we have Chick-fil-A, Cisco, the list goes on. Uh, she is the founder and CEO of Innovation Strategy Consulting Firm, Experience Labs, which we'll talk about uh, later on in the podcast. Uh, she's a Procter & Gamble trained brand marketer, and she saw firsthand how P&G drove revenue and profit growth with innovation. Author of Experiencing Design, The Innovator's Journey, which was published last summer, and she's also a visiting executive lecturer at the University of Virginia, Darden School of Business. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Karen. Thank you so much, Connor. It's great to be here. Lots to talk about today. I want to know where you grew up and how you grew up and maybe give us a little perspective on your your thoughts about, you know, entering the professional world and getting your education, your undergrad at Duke and your graduate studies at Georgetown. Maybe walk us through a little bit of the start. Sure. So I grew up in a suburb of Washington, D.C. My dad was a lawyer in Washington. We lived, you know, right outside the city. I was surrounded by politics, um, obviously, growing up in D.C. And so yeah. I thought I wanted to go into politics or I wanted to go into policy because that was my world when I was growing up. That's, that is what I knew. So I went to Duke. I went to Duke, actually, because um, my dad went to Duke. My grandfather went to Duke. And my great-great-grandfather built the buildings that were a part of the original Duke University campus when it was called Trinity College that were then moved over to Duke after the Civil War. Wow. Um, he had a building company. They were anti-war. Um, and so they were able to maintain their construction company during the war because they were Quakers and it was a safe place for um for anti-war members of the community. Um, so they built the buildings, um, some of the buildings that were a part of the original Trinity College that then became part of Duke. So we had this rich history of Duke in our family. Um, and, you know, they had an amazing basketball. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask if you're a Duke, you must be a Duke fan. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Basketball's always been a part of it. My brother went to Duke. Um, so, you know, we were a big Blue Devil family and long ties to, to North Carolina because my um, my dad, obviously, my dad was born in Durham um, and then was raised in Charlotte. So my grandparents were there and I never really thought about going anyplace else. I applied early decision. I got in. I don't even think I filled out an application for another school. <laughs> you shouldn't um, have had to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I studied um, public policy, uh, of all things, which was sort of a combination of political science and economics. And I came back to D.C. 
and I started working in policy and I was, um, I was the assistant director of a political action committee. And the pace of change was so slow that I thought I would pull my hair out. I thought I kept thinking about a long-term career in policy. And I thought, I, I can't do this. I, I just, I'm not built for this. I, I can't, I can't do this. Um, And so I took a pivot and I decided um, in 1984, when I was a junior at Duke, I read Tom Peters book uh, in search of excellence. And he wrote this book about all of the amazing companies like P&G and 3M and, and GE that had such strategic vision. And, uh, and I, I, I think I always knew in the back of my mind that I wanted to be a part of that business world. So I applied to business school and I, I went to Georgetown to get my MBA so I could cut my teeth in brand management, which I had read about as part of Tom Peters book. And so I got my, I landed my dream job at P&G right after Georgetown. I I majored in marketing when I was in graduate school and my entire academic experience and then my first professional experience uh, after working in, in policy was around being close to the user and really centered on creating value around the user experience. And P&G was the place to be. Um, if you were in marketing, that was the place to be. It was almost like a postgraduate. Felt a little bit like I was still in school because they invested so much in my learning and my experience um, that was really invaluable to my experience um, as a professional. So we we spent a year at PNG and I learned one of the most important things about my professional life ever. Um, when I was at PNG. So maybe we'll talk about that in a minute too. <laughs> yeah, I would love to dive into that. That's such an awesome story to share too about your um, uh, your your generations of of Duke alumni. That is uh, that is awesome. And uh, of course, you're basketball fans. You, who who wouldn't if you're not a, if you're a Duke? That's so, right. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I want to I want to switch gears now and talk diving into your your journey through your career and starting at Procter and Gamble you know we have some ties at Millennium ourselves we we had a few years ago at this point we we had a global marketing officer Jim Stangle he was Oh uh, my gosh yeah he, Jim interviewed me for my job No way <laughs> Yes I love Jim Jim was a keynote speaker at one of the Millennium Alliance digital marketing assemblies Back in uh, 2018, and we oh, did a Millennium Live interview with him as well. Oh so coming full circle here, yeah. Let's let's talk. Is. Let's talk about P and G and your experience <laughs> there. So you know you were uh, you developed promotion plans that help achieve volume and sales objectives for Folgers Coffee Line, and we yeah. we talked a little bit about this on, on our prep. So could you tell? Uh, could you walk us through your year at P and G and how it was really impactful for you? Sure. So um, I'll be dating myself when I say this, but I was <laughs> at PNG in the early 90s. So um, you may not even remember a time in the early 90s when 
when Folgers was the coffee brand in America. Folgers was close to a billion dollar brand and um, Starbucks was $165 million business, mainly centered in the Pacific Northwest. So it wasn't insignificant, but it wasn't the market leader that it is today. And the younger members of the brand team thought that we should be paying attention to Starbucks uh, because we had market leadership, but we knew that this was a potential threat or we, we know, we just had like this, this gut feeling that it was a potential threat. But at PNG, we're a very data-driven company and Starbucks wasn't showing up on our data. So it was almost as if they didn't exist which is an important lesson to mm. think about when you're thinking about the choices you make for your strategic decisions. And so we sent team of executives out to Seattle to experience this coffee house experience. And our executive team went around to a bunch of different coffee shops. I think they went around to maybe 25 different coffee shops. And they came back to Cincinnati and ultimately did not decide to do anything about Starbucks. And the reason <laughs> is, is that we relied on Nielsen syndicated data for all of our decision making. And it wasn't just our brand. It was that was the culture of the company. Everyone. Right. And we were and P&G was a promote from within company, which means that everybody learns the same set of processes and methods for decision-making and strategic choices. And there's not a lot of opportunity to question some of those habits and practices. So Nielsen syndicated data is a, a, it's a great product, but it measures grocery store sales, club store sales, mass merch, and convenience stores. And Starbucks wasn't being sold through any of those distribution channels they were being sold through alternative distribution channels. Fast forward 30 years, Starbucks is now a $24 billion business. I think last I checked, $24 billion business and Folgers is a $2 billion business. <laughs> Starbucks generates 12 times the economic value that Folgers generates. And at the time, I knew that there, I, I couldn't understand why we were not responding. Quite frankly, the fact that Starbucks was able to take an inferior bean because they were having to buy picked over leftover beans at the port because we and Maxwell House had the primary relationships with the farmers. So we had the first pick of the beans. So Starbucks was taking an inferior quality bean, but they were turning it into something that the customer wanted and they were creating new value for the customer that we were not delivering. Oh, by the way, our product at that point was a product that we ground, vacuum packed into a can, put it through a distribution system that you know, may end up in a warehouse for a year before it actually ends up in your kitchen. So mm. does that superior bean deliver the same experience that Starbucks is delivering when they wrap around this third place 
to enjoy your coffee and um, to experience community. And so this, so I left PNG. I left PNG after a year. I had this incredible year in Cincinnati, but my husband, who I brought with me to Cincinnati, he had <laughs> gone to Penn. And so he started taking graduate classes at the University of Cincinnati. And unbeknownst to me, second semester, he just completely threw out his um, required courses and took all these entrepreneurship classes and wrote the business plan for a new business. At the end of the year, he said, I'm not going back to business school and I'm starting this business. I'm like, okay. Wow. <laughs> um, and so I left Cincinnati and we, uh, we left Cincinnati. I left PNG. We moved back to DC and we started our um, publishing company. So I left PNG, but that experience stuck with me for a long time because I couldn't figure out how we had missed that opportunity or, or how we didn't maybe um, evaluate the opportunity in a way that seemed satisfying to me. And I didn't know what that was supposed to look like, but it just didn't, didn't seem smart at the time. But, you know, I left and and Starbucks, it still took a while for Starbucks to become what it is today, but that sat with me for a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they were focused on the really the customer experience at, at its at its core, and and change, of course, as and innovation, as you know, doesn't it doesn't happen overnight. And uh, so, you know, looking at those numbers now and revenue, it's certainly, uh, you know, there's a there's a Starbucks on every corner in, in Manhattan. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah. that's, that's where I get my coffee in the morning. So, <laughs> well, you know. I think like three years ago, pre-COVID, um, I had the opportunity to collaborate with um, an executive who happened to be at Maxwell House in the 90s. And I said to him, what were you guys thinking, right? Like you're the number two <laughs> leader in this space. How did you miss this? And he said, Karen, we buy the same data that you bought. <laughs> we were looking at the same data, right? And we were making the same set of choices that you were making because that's how we made our decisions. And he said, we, that a team of us were in Paris for some event and Starbucks was, having a grand opening for a new store on the Champs-Élysées. And he said, we were there when that happened and we knew it was game over. The train had left the station. There was no turning back. They were starting to make a global presence. And um, here they were opening on the Champs-Élysées, the most expensive retail real estate in the world. And the train had left the station. So you know, I, I took some comfort in commiserating. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you're not only we weren't alone, right? So let's, uh, let's like jump around now. You made a big jump across the country and yeah. went to Idaho to live. Yeah. So tell us about that. You, you cause you were, a, you know, co-founder publisher of the, of the company and, and, Broadband publishing, that was, how long did that go on for? And maybe there is some, there's some story around that, that move. Yeah. yeah. So like I said, my husband wrote the business plan for our new publishing company, the second semester of his first year in business school, which 
you know, he, he wasn't supposed to take any of those courses. Um, and I had no idea what was going on. So he writes this business plan and he and my father, because my father's a lawyer, scheme to deliver me incorporation papers for our third anniversary. Um, so on our third anniversary, <laughs> surprise, here we go. <laughs> here are the incorporation papers for our new company. You just need to sign right here. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> wow. And, um, and that summer, so I, so Sun Valley had been a place that we, um, we go to in the summertime, you know, we loved being there in the summer and, and because he had the summer off, um, he actually left me in Cincinnati and said, I'm going to Idaho for the summer to, you know, think about this business and how I want to get it started. And um, I'm going to rent a little place for us. And you just come out on the weekends when you can. So, um, so that's what we did. And, and we spent the summer in Idaho and uh, it, it's very intoxicating to be in the mountains and um, to to hike in, in the Rocky mountains and to be in that fresh air. It's really, um, it's really lovely. So we, so, you know, we moved back to DC, but we kept, um, going out to Sun Valley for the summers. And by the third year of doing this, we ended up driving two cars out filled with files. I, I think both of our cars, I had like a little Ford Explorer and, and he had, I don't know, some little sports car. Um, and, and so both cars were just filled with stuff. And then we shipped like a thousand pounds of paper um, that were files and things. We rented a little office um, that we could use for the summer because we could really be anywhere. And, and I broke my shoulder rollerblading that summer. And so we couldn't pack up and move you know, back East the way we normally did every single summer. So we stayed for the fall, which, which, um, what's that expression that Ernest Hemingway used to say about being in Sun Valley? Cause he, um, he lived in Sun Valley. Um, but we discovered the fall and it was so beautiful and spectacular. We looked at each other and said, maybe we should just live here. Like why are we <laughs> in Washington? Um, maybe we should just live here. So we did. We we took this huge leap, but we didn't have any kids and we didn't have a mortgage um, because we had sold our place in Cincinnati and we were just renting a place in D.C. And we thought, let's do it. So so we packed up everything and drove across the country again. And this time we we bought a place and um, we stayed for 14 years. So you were. You were there. I mean, I'm sure you skied too. I'm sure the season yeah. just got better and better. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there. the seasons got better and better. Yes. The skiing was amazing. I grew up skiing on the East Coast, skiing in Waterville Valley for any of those New Hampshire uh, skiers. I, I loved skiing on the East Coast, but you get out West um, and the skiing is spectacular. So yes. Yeah, so we discovered Western powder and it was, um, it was a, you know, that's a game changer. <laughs> yeah, it was it was wonderful. And then our business really thrived um, while we were there because we were free from the day to day 
distractions of living in a big city and traffic. And it really gave us the freedom of a couple extra hours in our day to to think and to grow, which allowed us, um, which allowed our business to thrive. And honestly, when you have your own business, you can be anywhere. I think people are discovering that now. Right? <laughs> I was about to say that's a new discovery of uh, the 2020s, right? You can start working anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so we could be anywhere. So we made, so we made this big move to Idaho and it was, it was beautiful. Great. So after those years, maybe bring us into the present or now your experience with Experience Labs and and finding that. Did you, so? Did you did you switch gears yourself and wanted to start a new firm? Maybe more about innovation strategy. At Experience well, Labs and what? How did that come about? Yeah. So we so we started our publishing company. This was the company that my dad and, and David, um, incorporated for our third anniversary. And, and we started this publishing company and we were writing about, um, telecommunications in the nineties. So in the nineties, all of the, the infrastructure that was required to provide all the streaming and internet services that we have today were being built. And there was huge investment in the industry to both make the the physical network that's required to support all of these services, but also all of the investment in the new technology that was required to make all of that happen. So, you know, these were the go-go years of telecommunications, Um, an incredible investment, incredible IP being created in Silicon Valley, which was really the center of activity. And we were writing a newsletter. Um, these are pre-internet days when, when you know, you still uh, still used newsletters, physical newsletters as like primary way to, to share research and to share information. So we were writing a <laughs> newsletter around wide area networks and telecommunications. And we were spending time with all these brilliant designers and engineers in Silicon Valley who were building the internet. And it allowed me to discover the value of design really in creating value for the stakeholders that they were serving. Because the the difference in the success of many of the companies that we were covering was not only the team that was behind the product or the service, whatever they were selling, but also um, the simplicity of the design in their product or service. So it was a real, um, it was a real discovery for me because I didn't grow up in that world, right? I grew up in this world of politics. And so to be introduced to this world of technology and be meeting and engaging with all these brilliant teams that were creating the internet and what it is today was an extraordinary experience. So, um, so those go-go years came to an end um, when, <laughs> when the bubble burst um, right after 9-11. And many of the companies that we were covering went bankrupt within 
six months to a year. It was an extraordinary moment in technology. It was an extraordinary moment in the economy in general. But I would say 90% of the companies that we were covering went bankrupt within six months to a year. And we had been drinking the Kool-Aid too, because we had been investing in the market. Um, Our business was in the market. So we took a big step back and thought, maybe this is why uh, people diversify. Um, And maybe that's something that we should take a look at. Um, Maybe we should be thinking about diversification. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a big, this is a big pivot for you. This was a huge pivot for us. So David's still in the telecommunications space, but that was a moment for me when I thought for our family and for our sanity, we needed to think about how we were going to diversify so that we didn't have all our eggs in one basket. I wanted to have a baby and I wanted to start a family. So, you know, that was a time for us to to think about building our family. I hung in for a couple more years. Um, We were hoping that the market would come back, that telecommunications would come back, but it really didn't. And in fact, here we are, what, 22 years later, and the market still isn't what it was in the early 90s, um, which is something. I remember we were talking to a venture capitalist, I don't know, maybe nine months after the bubble burst. And he said, Karen, the market's not going to come back for 17 years. And I thought, are you crazy? Like we were in the go-go years. We were, we were living with this amazing technology. This is just a blip in the market. And he said, Karen, the market is not going to come back for 17 years. Yeah. And, and it hasn't. He was right. I didn't want to believe him at the time, but he was right. That's insane. I mean, that's, a, that's quite the ride. I mean, you're, you're always going to have your... Uh your ups and downs, but it's no one expects the market never to return to what it really is. I mean, yeah, that's a that's an insane shift. So when did you decide to leave Idaho and and come back to DC? Let's see, we moved back to DC in 2010. We hung on um, another five years after the bubble burst, We, we hung on until about 2006. And David said, I'm gonna go work for somebody because um, I think that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) It's time for you to do your own thing. But when we moved back to DC in 2010, I found this language uh, in design thinking to help me make sense of what had happened at P&G and also um, an area of creating creative capacity in others that would enable the kinds of change that I saw happen in Silicon Valley. And the language of design really gave me a way to describe what had happened because at P&G at the time, if we had had a culture and P&G has this culture now, but at when I was there, didn't have this, if we had been a culture that had thought about placing small bets on new ideas and then succeeding more often in new situations, we might have been able to manage the risk of investing in new businesses. And I think ultimately 
we just didn't have a culture of experimentation. And so we, we missed that Starbucks opportunity. I think if, if we had been able to give ourselves the permission to do the kind of experimentation that we needed and not be perfect the first time, then we would have been able to meet Starbucks and exceed Starbucks actually, um, because we had the talent and we had the financial resources and, and we had the smarts to do that. And in fact, that's what PNG is doing now. I think that was probably a watershed moment for the firm when we missed that opportunity. Um, and now they've been able to create these huge billion dollar brands in Swiffer and Febreze um, using a lot of um, the lessons of design and experimentation and empathy and invention that um, has made the company smarter and more nimble and, and able to take risk in new markets. So I, let's dive into that. Let's talk about design and how you maybe furthermore, how you got into it being the founder and design strategist of Experience Labs. Let's let's dive into design thinking, maybe what it is and how it could help, you know, instead of like if we are seeking out better better results for, for today's business, maybe we should start asking, like, come up with better strategies or come ask better questions. A lot of this on executives' minds these days is building a culture of innovation within their organizations. And so I kind of want to, I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit about maybe strategy and using design as a strategy for digital marketing leadership today in order to uh, achieve success. Yeah. Well, you know, when we talk about innovation, I think there are a couple things that we want from innovation that are sort of our wish list, so to speak of, of the things we want. One is that we want to create better choices, you know, a, a portfolio of options to choose from that create better value for the people that we're serving. We want to do this in a way that reduces the risk and the cost of innovation efforts so that it's not expensive and it's not um, doesn't mean that it doesn't require an investment, but we want to be smart about it and we want to do smart innovation in a way that reduces the risk and the cost. I think another thing on our wish list is that we want to increase the likelihood that our ideas actually get implemented, right? Like <laughs> that we invest in ideas uh, or that we have a high hit rate, so to speak, right? Yeah. I think the most important thing is we want to empower the people in the organization to be more adaptable in a changing world. Because I think it's easy for us when we're working in stable environments to you know, fear the uncertainty and really avoid it. Um, and then what happens is we end up placing really big bets very slowly, which happen to fail more often rather than placing small bets quickly, learning from those, succeeding more than being able to manage that risk through action rather than through inaction. So, so those are the things that, that I think leaders want is, is to have better choices, create better value for people, 
reduce the risk and the cost of those innovation efforts, increase the likelihood of getting to success, and then helping make our people more adaptable in a changing world. It requires some culture change in order to do, and it requires, you know, a coalition of the willing, so to speak, who are willing to put their neck out in order to envision a a truly innovative future. Because not everyone approaches um, innovation the same way. In fact, when we wrote the book, we wrote about how fragile it is to do innovation work. Some of us feel very comfortable doing innovation. And I, when I say some, I mean like 25% of us in an organization um, yes. will feel very comfortable doing that work. Most of us will not feel comfortable. And there's, you know, there's differing degrees in that remaining 75%. Like there are people who will be inspired by the 25% who want to go and make the change, but they don't want to be first out of the gate, right? They, they don't want to take the risk the first time, but they're inspired by it. And if they see some strategic support for it and, and good things happen, they'll go along and, and be a part of it. There are others who are intimidated by it, right? And, and those are the people who really need some support because it's, it's scary to them. And then there are the people who just resist it, who, who just always have some insecurity and they have, they have a mindset that's driven by scarcity rather than opportunity. Is there a way to change that? What advice could you give to those who are maybe reluctant in changing course and maybe asking better questions? Yeah. So the way I approach all of this work is I, I work with that coalition of the willing first, right? Like their motivations are different and there are a group of people who will resist and that's fine. My efforts and my time and my investment are better spent with the people who want to make change and to help and identify and empower those people who can push the envelope and then create the wins that the rest of the organization can get excited about and will find the permission in themselves and will find the permission in their organization to step into that discomfort and join the willing. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's awesome. And and congrats. I think you, this, you started Experience Labs in January of 2012. Yes. Did I get that correct? So yep. congratulations on 10 years of, uh, Thank you. of experience Thank labs. You. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I want, I want to mention your book cause you did, you mentioned it yourself uh, just a moments ago. I want to know about the process of being published. And I know you, you <laughs> went through Columbia business school and yeah. uh, what's it like being an author and, and maybe give us some insights on uh, some cool aspects of the of the book and what maybe executives and leaders today and and readers would be most interested in learning from it. Fortunately for me, I wrote this book with a best-selling author who has written many books before. So uh, I was 
I, I really came along and had a great partner in this um, writing process. So and we've been working on it for about seven years. So we wrote a guidebook. We were doing some teaching. My the co-author is Jean Litka. She's a, a faculty member at the University of Virginia Darden School of Business. And we had been doing um, some courses for the executive education department. And so we wrote this guidebook, this manual that we thought would be really helpful for um, some attendees at an executive training that we were doing. And we thought it was really good. But when we finished it, we're like, uh, is this a book? I don't think this is a book. I don't like, this is good. This is useful. This is helpful. Our people certainly need it and enjoy it, but it doesn't break ground and it's not contributing to the body of knowledge in um, design the way we think a book should contribute. So we just kept pushing on. We, we kept researching. We kept having engagements with um, students and with clients. And we kept asking this same set of questions of ourselves that what does it take to do design well? Because we had been working with students and clients who would use the problem solving tools that we had available to them. And there was something missing about um, their experience. And what we realized is that you can't just pick up problem solving tools and expect to unlock the full potential of design unless you are experiencing something new and becoming someone new in the process. And wow. so we thought that it was really important to detail what those experiences were that we wanted people to have and and we thought that that could be really helpful um, to people who were actually using design. And so the process for writing a book is that you, you create an outline of, of your book. We create an outline for, I think, nine chapters. We wrote the first chapter and we sent it off to Jean's editor at Columbia. And they said, yeah, we think this looks like a book. And then they send it out. Um, they send it out for blind peer reviews. So they send it out to. I, we still don't know who they send it out to. Um, <laughs> they send it out to. I don't know professors. Maybe I'm not sure, sure. But they they send it out to some people, and then we see their comments. They write back, and they wrote back, and they said, "Yeah, we we think this is a book. We we think this. Now you have to go do it." Um, so that was about, I don't know, that was maybe four years ago that we, we wrote the first chapter, we wrote the outline, but then we had to actually go do the work. And the more we researched and the more we discovered, the more excited we got about sharing this with the world and contributing to the body of knowledge. So by the end of writing the book, we had a, a close alignment with that original outline, but in the end, it was pretty different from, from what we had originally written. Funny story, we, we turned in our manuscript to our editor last fall, and we had been working with this title, The Innovator's Journey, the, the whole time. And Miles came back to us and said, this book needs to be called Experiencing Design, The Innovator's <laughs> Journey. And we're like, oh, how come we didn't think of that? You're right. This is, that is what this book is about. 
And so we changed, so we changed our title at the 11th hour because our book editor thought that that, that was experiencing design was the two word essence of what this book was about. And now we can't imagine that our book had any other title, but that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of course. And, and you know what, it's something that's, that's so cool of you to, to mention because there is a quote in there that I want to say, and it's a really powerful quote. It's the transformational power of design thinking lies not in what it encourages us to do, but in who it encourages us to become. I think that's the focus of the discussion that we've had so far what is the design thinking i've been so i've been actually very interested in it for the last year or so and how i could use it in in my day-to-day and make decisions better for production side of millennium live and and the millennium alliance that is a that is such a great quote and uh experience it is experiencing design and what it what how it affects outcomes and decision making yeah. Is that, is that so geeky that I get the chills when people read that sentence to me? I just got the Absolutely chills not. when you read that. <laughs> no, it's awesome. It's awesome. <laughs> I know because that, that is the essence of the book, right? We wanted to convey the, the experience that we wanted you to have when using design so that you could become someone different in the process because we've seen so many people participate in hackathons which you know are the gold standard for some people when you think about innovation like let's have a hackathon right and let's let's hold hackathon and solve it with a hackathon and we saw so many people disappointed by the results of those hackathons because (laughs) Because it's more of a social experience and it's more of an awareness building for the value of innovation, but it wasn't actually accomplishing the goals that the organizers of hackathons hoped that it would accomplish. And it's too short a period of of time to have a deep and rich experience. It's it's just too superficial. A lot, you know, most hackathons are just limited by that because it's a short experience. They do a, hackathons are a great way to build awareness, like I said, and 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 they're a great social connector, um, and I love them for that. But it, they don't have that transformational power that design thinking offers to an innovator. And so we felt that it was really important to document what we thought those experiences needed to be in order to become someone new in the process. And so I do a lot of teaching. I'm also a visiting professor at a French business school, Ecole des Ponts, um, which is um, uh, English speaking French business school in Paris and Morocco. And so I work with these you know, wonderful students from uh, all over Western Europe and the Middle East. And when they experience what it feels like to move from being egocentric and, and thinking about problem solving from their perspective to an experience where they become empathetic about somebody else's experience and they begin to listen, to understand the perspectives of the customers that they're serving and they become 
sensitive and aware to the, the biases of their own experiences. And they start to develop you know, deep emotional engagement with the people that they're trying to serve and they're asking better questions and they're, they're searching for opportunities rather than the solutions that they came into the problem with. It's like a light bulb moment for yeah. them. <laughs> and, and that's when they become something new. And, and that's when I know then they can take that experience to another, their sphere of influence and, and reframe the way they do work and create value for people in new ways. And that is the power of design thinking. It's not just in learning new tools or learning a new toolkit. It's the experience of actually becoming more empathetic and, and more aware of our own biases. So that's the, maybe the front end of innovation, you know, but as we think about how we're going to collaborate with others, it's about how we begin to align with people who are different from us and how we invite diversity into our decision-making and, and welcome those diverse perspectives so that we can get to better solutions. But that's often, you know, especially in environments where there's a strong hierarchy, that is difficult to do. But it's important to acknowledge that when you do that and you actually experience that, you actually get to a, a better solution than one that a single person is able to develop. That's so that's so awesome. And and that truly is experiencing design. I think we need more of that in, in today's world. Yeah. All over the place. So yeah. that's this is such exciting stuff. And I'm so happy to have this conversation with you today, Karen. It's been really fun for me. And I hope it's been as fun for you as well. Yes, so thank you. I just have uh, I just have one final question for you as we wrap up. I want to know more maybe more about who your mentors were and maybe some inspirations that have guided you in your journey throughout throughout your career and where you see it going in the future. Yeah, so I I would say my one of my biggest influences is someone that I actually didn't even meet. My husband's grandfather was Leroy Grumman, who founded um, Grumman Aerospace. And when I married into the Grumman family, I started learning this language of design in, uh, we got married in 1990. So I, I started learning this language of design sort of in the background. I started absorbing, it's almost like a different language of communication because, you know, I mentioned that my dad was a lawyer and so he used a, a verbal language to communicate. And when I married into the Grumman family, the the family used a visual language to communicate. And that that's one that I had not been exposed to in my childhood. I had not even been exposed to that in my formal education. Yeah. But I, I learned about this um, and I learned how successful Grandpa Grumman was using a visual language to communicate. He was very shy and he didn't talk much. And so he used a visual language to communicate. It wasn't that he was, you know, deaf <laughs> or dumb or anything. He just, he was yeah. a man of very few words. 
And so one of my favorite stories about him is that the secretary of the Navy, so it's World War II, we're losing the war in the Pacific. And the secretary of the Navy came to grandpa and asked him how we could double the number of aircraft on aircraft carriers because we needed more planes in the air in the South Pacific. And so the obvious answer was to fold the wings of the, of the planes up because they would take less space to store. And a lot of naval aviators had tried to do that, but with poor results because the wings were snapping off. And so test pilots were going into the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean trying to figure this out. And grandpa's sitting around a table of his best engineers. There are about 30 engineers at this long conference table and, and they're all sharing their knowledge on the subject. And grandpa's sitting at the end of the table, just tinkering with an eraser and two paper clips. Paying attention, <laughs> right? But he's, he's absorbing everything that his engineers are telling him. He's not contributing a word to the conversation, but he's absorbing and he's tinkering. They come around to grandpa and he puts this eraser and two paper clips on the table and everybody instantly knew that he had solved this problem. And what he had been able to do was to figure out that the problem was the problem of a pivot. And that if with just with these paper clips and this eraser, and if you could fold the wing back on the plane, like the wing of a bird, then you could maintain the stability, but you can also achieve the space saving that you needed with by folding it back on itself. They instantly knew when they saw this visual artifact, which was just, you know, a cheap eraser and, and some <laughs> clips, like stuff that's just sitting around the office, right? Of course. And so that that simple prototype, which they still have, and they still, um, you know, it still sits in the, in um, they have like a little museum area up at, um, up at Grumman in Long Island. So they took it to the model maker and the, and the, the company, the firm's model maker made like a proper model that they could take down to the secretary of the Navy and, and grandpa put it on the desk and, and the secretary of the Navy instantly knew what this meant with this simple model, right? So there are not a lot of words being exchanged, but he was using this visual language to communicate and have better conversations that words were not achieving. That wing design came to be known as the Stow Wing. And that um, wing design went on the Hellcat and the Avenger, which were really important planes for us in the war in the Pacific and, and helped us win that war. And so it was stories like that, that I heard, you know, in those 20 years, remember I said, it took me like 20 years from the the time I left Folgers to the time I like found design thinking as a way, as a vocabulary and a way for me to describe all of these experiences that I had and, and absorbing and, and acknowledging the tools that, that Grandpa Grumman were using to achieve his results took me some time to absorb and understand. And he's really my design hero because I learned so much about the value of prototyping, about having better conversations by making things concrete instead of keeping them abstract, 
I learned so much about iteration and how to keep revising your plans until you get to a better place. I learned so much about empathetic leadership because during the war, most of his employees were women because their husbands were Mm. off on the war front and they had never worked before. And he would walk the shop floor and discovered that they needed more support. He created a diaper delivery service before the, that was even available. (laughs) (laughs) He created, you know, childcare services at the plant so that women had a place to take their babies. He had a little green truck that would, would go and meet people if they're, if they had a flat tire or they left their oven on or, or something, but he really met his employees where they where they were and treated them as family with a, uh, with an empathy that I think is so extraordinary for um, a leader uh, like him, you know, he was the largest yeah. employer um, in Long Island um, during the war, something like 45,000 people, 45,000 employees That's um, unbelievable. during the war. Yeah. You know, the, the, the spirit of empathy invention and iteration, which I think are the key principles of design. He was really my inspiration and and has, has really been my design hero. That's incredible. That's a great story. Wow. It's fantastic to end on. And and it's so important to, uh, to listen and to absorb and to be present. And this has been an awesome interview. I'm so happy that I've gotten to talk to you today, Karen. All the best wishes to you and your future and and your career journey as you continue on. You have fantastic stories to tell, so I hope you continue to tell them. Thank you so much. It was great to be with you. Of course. And of course, you can have to plug it, but Experiencing Design, the Innovator's Journey, you can get it on Amazon, I'm sure, or Google Play. Is it, I'm Amazon. sure it's even available in Barnes and Noble. It is. It's available at Amazon, um, Barnes and Noble. Yep. And your small bookstore, um, Politics and Prose here in DC, um, but small bookstores as well. Amazing. Well, thank you, Karen. And I hope you have a wonderful 2022 and we'll talk soon. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to Millennium Live to listen and learn on life and leadership.